And it seemed like everybody owned the album. Brothers in Arms was one of the first albums directed at the CD market and was a full digital recording, DDD, at a time when most popular music was recorded on analogue equipment. It was the first album to sell one million copies in the CD format and to outsell its LP version. Latest, later reviews praised it. Early reviews, not so much. Tritest would be melodies in history and tranquilizing chord changes set enemy at the time. Um, David Farrer must have been in your collection. No, I'm afraid no. not. <laughs> Never. Maybe he doesn't really you... ever Elvis, Beatles. Uh, stick to the classics, right? <laughs> yeah. What about you, Sue? A bit like uh, David and my music <laughs> tastes clearly. Um, the yeah, anti-dire no, stress brigade uh, in force yeah, no, today. It's, it is tranquilizing, but it is. Uh, <laughs> I think it is lovely. Yeah, it is. It is, and certainly, uh, uh, it is. Uh, many people who would have gone to try and buy a CD player uh, in 1985 would have actually known this album very, very well because this is the album, David, that they put on to try this new format called the compact disc uh, unit. I miss vinyl. You do? Yeah. Mm. There's something beautiful about it. Yeah, isn't there? Uh, look, uh, quite a big response regarding the um, uh, whether or not to have a cut-off point. The right to disconnect, as they say. As a nurse, says someone working for a DHB, it's expected we supply our personal number so they can text everyone when they're short-staffed. Usually two to three texts per day, often more, especially on weekends. Another one here, irrespective of contract, no one will do your work for you when you are away. Uh, Jeremy working at home on sick leave after knee surgery, pile of work would be huge on return. Uh, and there's another one come through as well, which says, my wife is part of a senior management team in a large company. She must be available at any time, as may be an emergency. You cannot legislate for this. It's just a part of modern life. Wallace, says Frank. If I reply to an email out of work hours needing a response, I'll charge 15 minutes for it on my timesheet. I get less emails needing my reply now on the weekends. Good on you, Frank. Thank you. Uh, and one more here. The right to disconnect is an important topic, as many of us by default are expected to accept text, email after hours, and it is taken for granted. Absolutely, it needs to be put into a policy. Until then, many employers will continue to erode a worker's right to have time solely for themselves. So I appreciate your uh, feedback this afternoon on the panel. Now, Christchurch call encountering violent extremism, helping or hindering. Gabriel Ford, master's student in conflict and terrorism studies at the University of Auckland, has written an opinion piece for RNZ, uh, came out this morning, says, while the recent issue and focus on prominent far-right extremist content is good to see, could the Christchurch call and wider counter-terrorism measures end up hurting the communities they are supposed to help? The Christchurch call, founded two months after the terror attack in Christchurch in 2019, claimed the lives of 51 people as a commitment for governments and tech companies to remove violent extremist content from online platforms. The counter-terrorism hurry on today uh, featured the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who spoke on the issue uh, amongst many and with us now is Gabrielle Ford, the master's student at the University of Auckland who wrote this piece. Kia ora Gabriel. Kia ora Wallace, how are you? I'm very well. Now so you say as a policy the Christchurch court has the potential to adversely 
impact minority groups and limit legitimate political speech. Explain that for us. Yeah, so firstly, I just want to say that I'm not at all opposed to the Christchurch call in and of itself. Mm. Um, You know, by itself, it's just a voluntary agreement, um, Mm. which governments and tech companies can sign up to, um, which is a good gold hat. But overall, it's part of a style of uh, counter-terrorism strategy, uh, countering violent extremism, which has some kind of troubling implications. It's um, based on looking at pathways to terrorism and preventing radicalisation. And this is called CVE. This is quite a internationally recognised uh, initiative, but it does, as you say, have a few unintended consequences that people are starting to write about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's um, it's been criticised basically for being... Uh, have, for ending up to target specific communities that have been deemed uh, at risk, which has historically ended up being Muslim communities, and it often ignores threats from other communities, uh, such as white nationalist extremism. So, for example, uh, I think the uh, article um, made a point. Uh, it was your article. So extremists, you say, are identified by governments and who is identified is a political decision. So in 2017, the FBI identified black identity extremists as a potential terror threat. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's an example that I like to use um, because it's, quite straightforward for people to understand how subjective that kind of definition can be. Um, So the the FBI identified a group of uh, people who were essentially Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, There wasn't any evidence of a wider movement or any premeditated violence or anything like that, but these people still ended up being placed on lists of suspected potential terrorists. Hmm, interesting. Sue Ketty, uh, you have any questions or thoughts on this? Well, um, yeah, I, I mean, if the, perhaps there is a risk, but on the other hand, the internet has become a new platform for <coughs> expressions of extreme violence, including against uh, women. And a lot of this, you know, the, the content we're talking about, extreme content, violent content, it's completely prohibited on traditional media. So why should you be able to publish it on uh, digital media? Why is there one rule uh, for traditional media and another for digital media? I mean, there's, there's um, and there is a lot of links, for example, now that, you know, that will let Proud Boys group, which mm-hmm. um, th- th- there's a lot of a link between men, particularly men like the Proud Boys, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they then end up being terrorist groups uh, charging on the uh, Washington, you know, on the, on the Capitol. So, that, I mean, there, mm-hmm. are, there are proven links between the people who promote this extreme uh, violence on uh, the, the digital media. Gabriel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is definitely a thing. But I think that what is really important to, to keep in mind is that um, this idea of extremist content isn't really defined anywhere. It doesn't. The Christchurch call itself doesn't define it uh, specifically because it would potentially impact those uh, that might sign up. So, kind of this idea that violent extremist content can just be banned uh, from 
social media or online forums in general is a bit tricky without having an actual definition of what that is and what what different things take a part of that because otherwise uh, a government could, for example, take some political material from, say, the Black Lives Matter movement and say, okay, that's violent extremist material. We can't have that on the internet. You have to take it down. Okay, David Farrow. Look, I think the Christchurch call itself is laudable and, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. There is the potential for overreach, but Mm -hmm. from what I've seen, I attend a couple of the meetings, I think they've well calibrated it. Where you get fears is having governments decide what material can be on the internet is problematic, certainly, but also so is having the big tech companies. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not just around um, terrorism extremism, but people would have seen that, um, you know, 12 months ago or, or so, Twitter and Facebook would remove you if you suggested the COVID-19 may have came from a lab. And now, of course, this is a widely shared, quite plausible theory. And it really was a bit of a scandal that you actually had tech companies censoring and suspending people for what's clearly freedom of speech. And they may actually have been correct. So it is a challenge, this area, because you don't want too much government saying what content's allowed on the internet. You don't want Mm -hmm. the tech companies being the arbiter. But there is very harmful material out there that it would be good to get removed. So Christchurch Call, I think, is you know, one of the better tools there, but we do have to stay vigilant. Final thoughts, Gabriel? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with pretty much what you've said there, David. I, um, yeah. All right. Yeah, very good. I've got one question for you before you go briefly. Um, you ask what makes something extremist. Uh, is there an internationally recognised definition of extremism? I, I don't know what body it might come from, the Hague, Amnesty International, um, the Homeland Security. Is there a, a recognised definition of extremism? No, so that's one of the major problems. There isn't one recognised definition. Not anywhere. Like there isn't. Uh, not not one that's internationally recognised that I'm aware mm. of, no. It's um, much like with terrorism. The term terrorism itself is very difficult to define. There are literally hundreds of different definitions that different you know departments of the US government use different definitions of terrorism um, depending on what their purpose is. So it's much like that in terms of uh, it's trying to take something that, that's quite complicated and... Uh, made up of social ideas, basically, and distill it down to something that's a fact. Shoehorn it into policy. We do have definitions for what is objectionable and illegal content, so um, I don't think it's that tricky, and certainly it seems to be reasonably clear-cut in traditional media, so I can't see why it's so uh, incredibly difficult and... Um, and why we should have different rules for online, digital okay. media. Gabriel Ford, uh, Master's Student uh, in Conflict and Terrorism Studies at the University of Auckland. Thank you. Coming up to 15 to 5, the panel are uh, in Z National. 
A new research project aims to help couples get better at talking about money and is looking for participants. The study is a collaboration between AUT and Good Shepherd and both individuals and couples can take part. It involves testing an online toolkit the researchers have designed to help people build healthy financial relationships. Many New Zealanders don't talk about money with their partners and this ranges from, say, not telling a partner how much they earn to debt infidelity, where individuals are pretty secretive about how much debt they have, what they buy, perhaps. For more on this, I'm joined by co-researcher Nicola Eccleton, who's the manager of social inclusion at Good Shepherd New Zealand. Nicola, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure. Why, first up, I... That might not come as a surprise to me listening, you know, when you're in a relationship. There are certain aspects of your, say, your savings or your monetary side that you do tend to, or some say, some might, keep it a little secretive. Yeah, it is. And our issue is that taboos are problematic because when people keep secrets... Um, that creates problems. We know that when we remove these taboos and people start talking about things, we can improve things for people. But also for those people who are in really difficult situations, we make it easier for them to get help. So the problem that we have with money is that we have this whole range of negative outcomes. It can be a source of conflict. People can fight about it. It's one of the big reasons people get divorced. Um, but at the extreme end, when people are lying about money or hiding money or debts and using finance as a form of control and coercion, uh, it's a form of family violence that can be really devastating. It can underpin a lot of uh, issues between relationship counter. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's no, no, no real surprise here in a sense. But uh, what can go wrong when couples don't talk about it? Can you give us an example of, uh, of this sort of debt infidelity? Oh, that's basically, um, this, is a, this is a real problem where people are not disclosing the debts that they might be racking up, mm. and they might be racking it up in their own name, or they might be using your trust to just get you to sign something. Um, and we use the term STDs, and for us it means sexually transmitted debt, not diseases. <laughs> uh, and, it can, and it can create real hardship. Mm. Um, let's go to our, um, our panellist Sue Kirsty, you got a question or a thought? Um, well it, it sounds um, very worthy um, you know I, I completely agree that um, money can be a source of control and coercion and difficulty in relationships um, and particularly when for women who take time out mm. for example to um, Look after children, which of course, uh, or, or men, uh, that I hasten to add, um, and of course, where they're not paid, then you know that that, that can raise issues. So I think that uh, what you're proposing is, uh, you know, breaking that tab- taboo, incredibly worthwhile. Nicola? Yeah, thank you. So do so do we. I mean, f- from my perspective, and from Aisha's as well. So um, she's my co-researcher. Um, we think that until we address the financial situation, we're not actually going to make a dent in our family violence statistics. We know that not only does financial and economic harm have its own impact, but people are telling us that's why they're staying in, in violent situations. They're staying in physically abusive relationships because they can't see a way out financially. And it's really problematic mm. that we haven't addressed it in and of its own, uh, of its own right um, because it's it's complex, it's difficult, it's tied up with the bank, your credit rating, 
um, your debts, as, as we've talked about. And it's it's been in the too hard basket, in my opinion, and it's time to sort of, you know, raise some awareness so that we can start thinking about some of the responses that we can mm. have. David Farrow? I'm probably at one extreme end of the spectrum in that um, in terms of joint expenses, we have a budget, we talk every month how we're doing, we work out how much money we need and generally we equalise our income so the higher earning partner will pay over whatever proportion to the other one so we've both got the same. So we're very focused on that but what we have left over, we have our own personal bank account, I have no idea what my partner spends uh, her money on non-joint and same there so that for me is the sort of goal is that the stuff you have to manage together you should be totally so open you have, and transparent. So you, you have an account together but you keep but you also have one account separate? Yeah we each have yeah. our personal accounts and we have the joint account and the vast majority of spending is through the joint account um, etc. Um, but the key thing is you know we talk about all our outgoings the insurance the investments um, etc so okay. there are no hidden surprises. You could be a tutor at this uh, course it sounds very <laughs> admirable. Is <laughs> is is David got got it right Nicola is that the way to go about it you've got a separate account but then you have a joint account where you talk about everything? We would say there's no one right way, right. But, but the decision should be mutual. So if you're in a partnership or a relationship, you can either have one person manage the money, which in my house is me, so I'm always really conscious of that. Um, but it's about that being a decision that both of you make. So my husband has said, yep, you go for it, you know what you're doing. He still has the same credit cards as me and the same access to all of the money. So it's, if we talk about it and we have different examples of how you might do it, then people can work out where their level of comfort is. Just finally then, um, tell us quickly about this online toolkit that you're testing. What does it include? Look, it's basically um, the content at the moment, and what we want to do is m- make sure that we've got the content spot on so that then we can make it interactive and exciting and, and people want to use it. But it starts off by looking at your own relationship with money because people bring baggage, you know, the way they were raised, the way yes. mum and dad did things. Yes. So looking at yourself and your own baggage, talking with your partner, and then the, and then the second part is sort of how do you bring these subjects up? When should you talk about it? and um, some actual real-life examples of how you might be able to go about some of these difficult, fraught conversations. All right, all the best for the research there. Co-researcher Nicola Eccleton, uh, Manager of Social Inclusion at Good Shepherd NZ. Thank you for your time. Uh, it is nine to five. The panel are NZ National Checkpoint next. Uh, we are with uh, David Farah and Sue Kesley this afternoon. Uh, well, one person who went to Dire Straits in the mid-80s, Dire Straits toured Aotearoa on the back of their Brothers in Arms album. As a teen at the time, it was the biggest thing since sliced bread. I believe they created the largest crowd gathering in the South Island's history, 75,000 plus, at the Lancaster Park concert. I was there. It was huge. Although not a diet-in-the-wool fan, the album brings back memories of those days, so it is significant to me in that sense. Guy, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, and a couple more. Please ask the panellists what time is too late, rude to call. Sometimes people call at 9 p.m., too late unless someone's dying. Uh, not that's not a joke, not humorous, but um, nine p.m. Is Same. it too late? It is a bit late, isn't it? So 
I think 9pm is probably a good cut-off point. Yeah. David? I go with 9. Yeah, all right. Agreement all around there. Ten, good afternoon. Ten years ago we got married and asked no presents, but instead a contribution for us to buy a piece of art. Says Sue, we love the painting we bought and the memory it invokes, but it was a bit awkward and I'm not sure we would do it again if we had our time again, says Sue. All right, thank you for that. Seven to five, the panel RNZ National. Now, the Marlborough District Council wants to scrap a permit that allows white baiters the freedom to camp in Wairo River for four months at a time. Fishers are allowed to park up the Wairo Diversion northeast of Blenheim during the white baiting season, so long as they have a permit from the council, writes local democracy reporter Chloe Ranford. But councillors last week agreed to put an end to the decade-old rule after residents questioned it during the region's Freedom Camping Bylaw Review last year. The council's Freedom Camping Bylaw now prevents campers from staying at a campsite for more than two nights in a row. So with us is Blenheim resident Lynette Vork, who sold her home to live in a bus and is upset the white bait permit could be scrapped. Lynette, welcome to the panel. Hi, thanks. Welcome. Thank you for letting me have a say. <laughs> Pleasure. Explain why you think scrapping the permit is a bad idea. Well, you know, most of the people that go down there, to be honest, are mostly retirees and from Blenheim. There's not a lot of outsiders that go there. Um, and, you know, all these people like to we gather together. They like to... It's sort of like a little bit of a camaraderie. You know, we all get along, we share meals, share stories. No, it's just a really good thing to be out in the fresh air. It's good for their mental health. And some of these people can't really... I don't want to be tying the caravan all around the countryside, but, you know, tying it from town to the division is not a bad thing. Okay, no, so this is a, this, right. So this is loss of lifestyle, and you are saying two nights just not enough to to, to 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 keep that camaraderie going. Absolutely, it needs to. You know, no one's doing any harm. You know, they said from their meeting, they said that they've got they get eighty five to eighty five, eighty to eighty five. You know, permits issued every season. I can assure you with hand on heart that the most that we've seen probably the last three years would be 30 people at the most at a time. What do you and reckon? Thursday there for the whole season. That's just the most that you'd see at one time. Sue, Kirsty, what do you reckon? A group of uh, long-term caravanners want to stick together, ha- play Scrabble together for months, not a couple of days. You can't get that camaraderie going. Sounds pretty no, pretty delightful, but I think this is the sort of um, issue we leave to um, the Marlborough District Council to solve, because presume they've passed this bylaw saying you can't freedom camp for more than two days. Were all these caravanners not there when they were passing that bylaw? Because that's the problem, isn't it? You've got one law saying they've just passed this law saying you can only freedom camp for two days, two nights. Oh. And then, then you've got your exemption for four months. So, so this so this permit system is seriously totally separate than the freedom camping bylaw. You've always been able to stay at the diversion for two nights. Always that bylaw has been around for years. That's what it's always been. But all of a sudden, they've decided to pull it into their new bylaw that they passed. Yeah like December last year, November, December, and put in place. 
And all that bylaw, the only thing they changed at the diversion was that they cut out all that area that we used to park in. They've cut all that off and said, no, you can't park oh. there anymore. You can't get a permit and park there anymore. You can only park down the far end and that's it. All right, so David, we've got, we've got another panellist. We've got another panellist here, uh, uh, um, uh, Lynette, David. Well, I love white bait, so I'll be very sad if uh, the change, of course, leads to less white bait. I think this is the great law of unintended consequences, yeah. where the council said, oh. oh, we don't want these tourists coming here and not spending any money and camping for free, not covering themselves. So they passed the bylaw to cater for one situation, and that catches something which I think is quite different. And what I would suggest to the council is to go back to the original bylaw and say, well, look, if we want consistency, maybe two days is just too short. Maybe we should actually be a bit more lenient. That's a good solution. That's a good solution. Hey, finally, Lynette, by the way, you sold your home in 2016. You bought, with your husband, a $150,000 motorhome, permanent, full-time. Any regrets? Oh, absolutely not. Our bus is called No Regret. You, you, your bus is called No Regrets. Is no it really? Regret. No regrets. Oh, no reverse. Oh, classic regret. Lynette. Right thank- on TV. No oh, I see. Lynette, thank you. And David Farris, Sue Kishley, appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. I'm um, Wallace Chapman, and uh, oh, gosh, what have we got here? A little bit of uh, money for nothing. See you tomorrow.